let's crack open a beer and share some thoughts. Welcome to Opinions and we're back in your ears once again. The beer is in the glass and we're ready to go, but we're not alone this week, are we, Martin? No, very excited to have this returning guest. Uh, welcome, Johnny Garrett, who's best known for his work on the Craft Beer Channel, and as I'm sure everyone knows. Uh, but it's also about to release a new book through camera called A Year in Beer. And as I said, Johnny, welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you back on, mate. It has been a, a, a while since you last joined us on the podcast. I think it was November 2017 was, was the last time that, that you joined us. But we're going to chat about that a little bit later. Cool, cool. Yeah. <laughs> a lot's changed for you with Belgian beer since then, so I'm excited to hear. Well, very much so. And that's <laughs> very on point as well, because um, we are drinking uh, drinking the seasons this, this week, uh, basically, because it does tie in to your new uh, book release. And I know you made some suggestions for us in terms of which beers we could potentially try and get that um, would cover off the seasons. And we were struggling to source them all. So eventually Martin and I decided to go down a slightly different route and we chose four beers from a single brewery that, that we feel represent the seasons quite well. Um, and they're all beers from the Colonel for, for, for us tonight. So the first one that we're going to be drinking this evening is their Belgian Palau, which is made specifically with a golden top, 4.7%. Uh, and as I, say, I know you're drinking something slightly different, aren't you, Johnny? Yeah, so I've gone for a Belgian style beer as well, though. So I'm drinking uh, the May Saison from, uh, well, from Unity, but it's under their sort of side project umbrella, May Provisions. Um, so it's a Ryan Spruce Tip Saison. Excellent. So shall we, um, we've already got the beer in the glass. This is smelling wonderful from where I am. I really want to dive into this. So shall we say cheers uh, and, and then we can talk about spring. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Oh, that is delicious. The Colonel one. I mean, obviously, I mean, I started off by being a bit surprised with the golden tops there to start off with anyway. I'm not sure that's what I was expecting. But presumably the Belgian straight yeast strain that they've used is what's given us that slightly funky aroma to it. And massive dry finish. Yeah, re really dry, really bitter. There's, there's a bit of... Um... Almost a bit of pepperiness on on that as well that that you probably normally get more from like a traditional straight up saison, yeah. um, and and actually it's it's almost drinking more like a saison than it is a parallel. I I, I, would, I would concur with that. Um, not sure I've seen many actual beers titled Belgian parallel from the Colonel or overtly going down the Belgian route. We know they do their saisons and sours. But I don't know if I've seen anything like that, but I would agree. It almost is too um, spritzy and zesty for it to be anything other than it feeling like a saison. But that, yeah. it's no bad thing, though. No, absolutely not. Really enjoying it. John, Johnny, how is your saison? Yeah, my saison is is beautiful. It, it's rich and like a lot of the Belgian saisons, like Saison Dupont, like the perceived sweetness is there. It feels like it's kind of sweet because of all those heady spices, but it's like yours it's really nice and dry there's some toasty spicy rye uh and then spruce tips which i guess we could talk about with spring but um they bring a real kind of lemony zip to it um which is kind of like hops but you don't get any of the bitterness with it so it's it's a really 
Smells incredibly sweet, but is outrageously drinkable. And we're drinking these beers, as, as I said at the outset, so this is to represent spring. Um, so, Johnny, without giving away too much from, from, from your book, what are some of the characteristics that you would look for uh, at this time of the year um, when looking to choose a beer? Yeah, it's interesting. So I should probably give a little bit of context around sort of the, the, the idea of the book, because... Um, essentially there's kind of two ways of looking at seasonality in brewing. You've got seasonal brewing and then you've got seasonal drinking. So seasonal brewing to me is, you know, stuff where nature almost dictates what you can do. So it used to be that nature dictated everything. We couldn't control the temperatures of our fermentations. We couldn't control you know, when ingredients were ready or in season or anything like that. So we had to, we were just entirely at the mercy of the seasons and the weather and the harvest. Um, and we sort of ironed out those seasonal seasonal kinks over the years through pasteurization refrigeration that kind of stuff um and maybe some people are coming back into that but then there's seasonal drinking which is exactly i think what you guys did which is you thought about spring and you thought about the flavors that you wanted to get from your beer and that could almost be any beer in the world depending on your experiences of those seasons so when it comes to seasonal drinking i think um spring you're thinking of freshness you're starting to think of the the first longer days the first warmer days drinking outside so everything to me should be you know sort of um april showers floral you know the new growth of of, of flowers coming through um of, of abvs dropping again as we're not looking to get warm we're looking to have a couple of beers outside so it's sort of it's it's fresh it's dry it's floral it's zingy and it's it's um getting back into like pint territory where, where spring and summer is all about the pint okay well this beer ticks that those boxes the belgian pale ale from um the colonel so i think it was a really nice evocative description there um and obviously spring covers obviously maybe one or two months depending the time of year and how people view it march april you know that kind of thing um but i do i do like that that thought process and obviously i was thinking about how i would have approached a book and you've got you've got in the, the question i want to ask is did it go in a different direction to what you originally set out yeah, I mean, I have to be entirely honest. The the pitching process is a little bit weird. So I I went to camera the publishers with an idea, and actually the idea was a little bit too close to Matt Curtis's new book. Um, so they they came back to me and was like, "Have you got any other ideas?" We were thinking about something around seasonality. So I went away and I was sort of like, All "Right, seasonality." Like I I I, I drink seasonally. I all the cliches of like lots of lager and hoppy beers in summer and then dark beers in winter, Christmas beers at Christmas. But I was sat there and I was going, I don't think I can get 60,000 words out of the idea of seasonality. Um, but before I said that, cause obviously, you know, I'm a writer quite fancied another book deal. Um, so I was like, no, I need to sit down and think about this. And so I sat down, I just started by making a note of all of the events that happen throughout the year in the UK all of the famous beers that get released throughout the UK and started trying to look at the patterns and see what was going on. Um, and really quickly, the whole book just fell into place. And suddenly, you know, there's a couple of months where you're a bit like, Oof, I'm not quite sure, you know, what I can do for this and what's really happening. Um, I'm looking at February. Um, 
But other can months. You stop, can you stop picking on February? There's yeah. nothing wrong with February. <laughs> Is that your birthday month? Am I? Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, sorry. I mean, there's a great reason to celebrate and drink beer in February, and that's Martin's birthday. But um, other than that, um, there's there's Valentine's Day, um, Pancake Day, Pancake Day as well. So, um, yeah, I had months where I kind of struggled or where I had to get outside of the beer kind of sphere to find something like I did with the the um, national pizza day which is a big passion of mine beer and pizza um but then months like October you know that I couldn't find space we had to cut chapters out of September and October um to 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 hit the word count so it I I would never have written this book two years ago I wouldn't have thought and I'd look at it if somebody else had written it, I'd be like how are you going to turn that into a book but as soon as you think about it, and I think it's true of seasonality and brewing. Everyone thinks they don't drink seasonally. But if they sat down and looked at what they drank throughout the year or looked at what they want from their beer around the year, suddenly they'd be like, oh, man, I really, really do. And I didn't even realise. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting the way you actually split it between brewing seasonally. I definitely think I was definitely looking at it from a point of view. And the reason why me and Steve had chosen the beers was drinking seasonally. There was definitely what I had in my head, but that still comes out in the book as well. More so, more so with your lovely pictures, which a bit like the warning I give to people when reading Matt Curtis's book, have beer and food nearby when reading this book. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, some of the shoots that I was doing were just sort of shooting themselves, like in, uh, in the English hop harvest and the malt harvest. Just I got so lucky with both days and just got the most beautiful light um and it just looked immediately seasonal it immediately made you thirsty um but i mean that sort of feeds into this idea that we think about you know you sort of said that you thought about it from a what's going to taste good and you know they're they're hugely interlinked you know like it's not just it happened to be that we all thought that the same flavors would work in spring it's because spring offers up those flavors whether it's in the food whether it's in the drink it's just the aromas as you walk around so it's it's definitely not sort of coincidence that we all land that way and even if we're all drinking you know most big each drink ipa all year round but i talk about in the book a lot about how there are different ipas for different seasons whether it's you know polar opposites black ipa in winter and uh new england ipa in in um spring it could also just be different hops you know the new zealand hop harvest lands on our shores at a different time as the american ones do the americans come three or four months later in spring which is why ipas probably will taste at their absolute best in spring because every brewer is using their new hops from that harvest so you know even if you're just an ipa drinker you're drinking seasonally i think what you've mentioned there in terms of that the way that the, the book's laid out it it, it goes month by month but you kind of start each section with a bit of an overview of the season and and, and then you go into each of the months and as, as you said there you've you've picked out a, f a few events was once once you got into the mindset of this is what the book's going to look like did those events and things simply just start choosing themselves and start falling in place or did you start off with like a really long list and, and was like right i want to get all of this in and you actually ended up only getting some of it in you know, I mean, I've done this twice now. I've written two books where I've had to be really careful about what I put in because this was written during lockdown, which, I mean, it is mostly a travel book. Um, and that was a bit of a nightmare. And so every time I wanted to put a beer in, a brewery in, or a, um, a pub in or anything, the, the, once I had that long list, 
the main way that you guarantee getting in was like looking like you weren't going to close forever. Um, so that was a real consideration with this book because I wanted to, to have longevity. But what I also found on top of that was, you know, you can really see where somebody's really thought about the concept of a beer or a brewery or an event and really considered when it should be. Um, like when I talk about IPA day, which is in August, I, I took the idea of IPA day apart in the books. I was like, this is the most stupid fucking time to have IPA day. Like we talk about how you need to keep IPA cold, but we're celebrating it at the height of summer. We talk about how the hops come over in sort of February, March, April. So you're coming at a time when there's no fresh hops coming in. Um, and you're just before the harvest of New Zealand and English hops. You're like, this is a mad time to be celebrating hoppy beer and stuff like that. So I still wanted it to put it in because it's the biggest sort of hashtag day in the beer calendar. But, you know, probably lots of other events got got put out of the book because you're like, it doesn't make any sense for you to do that right now. Um, it's all, I mean, you could say the same for, good, um, for Great British Beer Festival. Why would you be in a glass building in the height of summer trying to serve <laughs> perfect cask ale? It's kind of mad and aseasonal to do that. Yeah, I've, and to be fair, there's definitely a few camera summer beer festivals that have suffered purely because of the time of year they're trying that on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a few wet towels doesn't really cut it, does it? <laughs> Certainly not by like day three or four, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's, it's one of Steve's favourite pastimes is drinking warm flat gravity poured car spirit camera festivals can't, can't get enough of it that's that's yeah. that's the peak of seasonality for me that, that, <laughs> that really is uh, johnny you mentioned that it was uh, a, a lockdown project so obviously it, it gave you something to do dur- during those months mm-hmm. um it must have to a certain extent as well helped you through that period because you're you're a freelancer aren't you so you're you're someone who earns your living from being able to go out and work in the, the, the beer industry and for many months that was closed so did, did this did it enable you just to have a little bit of a focus and to, to know that you were working towards something at, at, at the end yeah I mean during during the first and second lockdown it was it was an absolute godsend because yeah work dried up almost entirely for me like luckily I have the craft beer channel which we'll, we'll talk about later and I managed to plow so much more time into that but um without this book i'd have i'd have been really worried and i actually didn't qualify for any government support either because i hadn't been a freelancer for long enough so i had zero income for about three months but luckily had this book that i could work on um for the final lockdown it became a real curse though because i'd been putting stuff off going i'll wait until lockdown's over so i can go to these these places that are a bit further flung i can go there and not have to worry about spreading covid to anybody um and then of course the freedom never happened um so this book was um submitted in in april um and we weren't sort of properly released until um god when was it now was it june well, yeah fu- mid-june or july fully release was july wasn't it so yeah you, it was all the stages before that april and may and bits in june here there and everywhere it was mid-july before it was the off you go kind of thing yeah so i mean it yeah it was I can't tell you how good it was for my mental health for the first half of the lockdown and how terrible it was for my mental health sort of the second half. But I was really keen to not make it a lockdown book as well. So I think there's only two photos where you can see a mask. Um, and and there's no real... The only time I reference it is in the trip to Harvey's where um, 
the, the head brewer there, Miles, talked about how the thing he was most scared about in lockdown wasn't um, being put out of business. He thought if his yeast died, he'd be out of business. That was his primary concern. It was mm. keep the yeast alive. So he just brewed enough, just enough to keep his house yeast going. I think it's an interesting point that you say there about not not wanting to make it uh, a lockdown book and, you know, the imagery that there only being a picture of a single mask. But I, I think at the same time, I, I don't think we should be trying to erase that completely like it, it, it never happened. There needs to be historical markers don't that doesn't there for the future to for future generations to look back and say well there was that there was this period of time in 2020 2021 where people weren't allowed to go out what what mm. was all that about and i think if we if we start to find that books and videos and films and podcasts and radio stop mentioning it like it never happened you, you're essentially trying to rewrite history a little bit aren't you i think there's going to be a lot of uh, writing about covid in a couple of years time i think you know certainly in terms of the impact that it's had on brewers and on the brewing scene it's too early to really tell i did a talk at imbibe today um in which you know i was trying to explain what the impacts might be and sort of you have these weird moments of clarity when you're doing talks just like you stumble over a word or something and you suddenly go back into your head and you go and i was just sort of like I'm really spitballing here. I'm really worried about what these people are thinking and whether I'm helping them by saying these things because we, we sort of have, have no idea. Um, and so I, you know, I don't know whether there'll ever be a book about it, but hopefully, um, hopefully we will be able to analyze it and it won't just be sort of ignored as like the year that never happened um, because it's going to have such profound impacts on, on small businesses. Um, but I mean, this book, I wanted to be, I didn't want to gloss over COVID. I wanted it to be a book that would be relevant any year that you picked it up. So mm-hmm. it's like, that's why it's called a year in beer, not, you know, the year in beer <laughs> or, or something like that. That sort of goes, this is what it was like this year. I was kind of keen to make it. And I don't really mention specific beers that often. It's often, you know, Siren make amazing Imperial Stouts or um, the best smoke beers come from Torside. I don't specifically talk about beers in case that dates it too much. Yeah, because you could easily do that and suddenly that that's the beer which they decide to discontinue. Yeah, well, I mean, I learned it the hard way because we did a book, um, the, the London Craft Beer Guide, and I knew yeah. it was going to happen. I said to the publishers, uh, which is Penguin, I said, you know, we, we, can, we can do this book, but, you know, in two or three years' time, half these pubs are going to be closed. A couple of these breweries are going to be bought out or closed. But initially, they wanted to pe- me to put tap lists for all of the pubs, and I was like, you really have no idea how how this segment of the pub and brewing industry works and so i made that book as much as i could get away with with our editor like a snapshot of that year that was the opposite if that had happened in covid i'd have been like this was covid craft beer because i wanted it to be like this is 2016 in london if you're reading this in 2019 like this is what it used to be like and if you're reading it in 2016 it's like you need to go to this pub now because you know the fox closed duke's closed Mason and Co closed. Beavertown got bought out. Camden Town got bought. Like all of these, they just fell like dominoes, and it was a different book immediately, a different time. Oh, there's a lesson there. Don't let Johnny write about your establishment. <laughs> Possibly that. Possibly that. <laughs> How's your beer going down, Steve? Because mine's almost um, vanished. It's 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 going down incredibly well. Um, all, all that all, all that talk, that introduction that that, that Johnny gave of spring just it, it all literally came to life in 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 the glass and it's making it really really easy to, to to drink it's just it just continues to be really really light and um 
yeah, I'm really surprised that the that the colonel churned out a Belgian parallel. I, I really am. They, they seem to be have, have gone through a phase. I don't know whether it's me just not being aware of it because I've, I've now moved out of London, so I'm not so in the London scene or whether they've always been doing this, but they now have like, they've had Keller beers, they've, they've had Dunkles, they've had Belgian pails, all this kind of stuff that you just don't expect from, from kind of, to me, they're always an IPA and a mixed firm brewery. And it seems they're sort of expanding their, their palate a bit. Yeah, I'd agree thing. with that. Yeah. No, uh, yeah. I mean, again, uh, the, the, they don't churn out bad beers today for starters, um, but that's a really good combo of the Goldings hops with the with some form of Belgian yeast strain that they've got there. And that's it, a- um, it, it. It sounds a bit like uh, I wish I could taste it now, but it sounds a bit like Taras Bulba, which is very dry, very bitter, yeah. some yeah. Belgian ester kind of things. Mm. And the fact they've used British hops because I think, well, I know that. Um, uh, that that Delisen love British hops and in particular love Harvey's best. And I wouldn't be surprised if um at the very least Evan's gone, oh we'll make the beer that maybe uh maybe Delisen would like to make or maybe they do because they went Delisen won't tell you what hops are in it, I don't think. That's a really good shout. The only, this has probably just got slightly more funk on it than a Taras bar, but it's definitely getting towards that ballpark. Same for the ABV, I guess as well. It's in that Bull, right ballpark, place. surely. Oh, very good. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that is a, that's a really good comparison. But no, that's, I mean, that's, it is definitely uh, getting towards the pintable territory on that one. I mean, it's just that dryness keeps you wanting to come back. Some, something I didn't talk about when I talked about my beer is there's this interesting thing. So you have Christmas beer, everybody knows about it, but there is also um, Easter beer, which is really nebulous and nobody really knows exactly what it is or what it's supposed to be and brewers all interpret it in different ways. But the one thing that I discovered is, you know, it does seem to be um, very hoppy and should never be aged. And that seems to be this thing about Easter ale, which might come from, you know, it would have been back when we didn't brew during the summer, it would have been the last brews until September, October time. So you'd brew something that would last a couple of months, which would mean a high hopping rate, but not something that you were going to age out like you would in October um with, with a high abv so maybe it meant that you hopped it high to keep it from getting infected but you weren't going to age it very far so you'd keep the low, the the lower abvs and so you kind of come out with this hoppy not to be aged kind of beer which makes sense with what you're drinking and the saison i've got which is you know loaded with delicate flavors like like spruce which only comes out in spring and is gone in, you know a week later drunk a beer with spruce tips in it so you i think you said at the, uh, the outset that gives it sort of a bit of a lemony aroma and flavor yeah they're these so they're they're the new growth of the branches on spruce trees and they look like tiny little christmas trees they're incredibly bright green um and you can just eat them like that they're lovely and soft and they're kind of um piney and lemony and if they're really um sort of in peak condition they're quite oily as well um and yeah it's sort of you can get those really dialed in like lemon um, lemon and pine notes, like a you know a really great Cascade or Centennial, but with none of the bitterness that's associated. Um, so they're a really interesting thing to brew with. And I think they were used in unhopped ales hundreds of years ago before hops were sort of used in most beers. Oh, okay. Adds a bit of the uh, the flavouring and the aroma then. Yeah, exactly, oh. yeah. I'm well, after all that talk, I'm ready for a second one there. I'm ready to move on to our summer beer. Yeah, yes. Um, so uh, we, um, again, continuing on, on, on our theme of beers from the Colonel, 
as most people will probably know, Colonel aren't famed for their lagers, which is which is probably what most people would reach for in, in terms of a summer beer. So we went for the next best obvious thing, which was just the biggest, hoppiest IPA we could find on their website. <laughs> yep. Uh, India Pale Ale, Citra Columbus, 6.8%. Can't wait to try this one. No, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Jo- Johnny, what have you got for your summer beer? Uh, so my summer beer is uh, a self plug. Um, so for the for the release of a year in beer, I went to four breweries and asked them to brew a collaboration with me, and we brew a beer that represented that season. Um, so I went to Daya for spring. We brewed a West Coast double IPA that we hoped would taste rain soaked pine was what we were going for. Um, so it's it's Idaho seven. Um, so, uh, oh gosh, I've forgotten now. Mostly Idaho seven. That's what we were. We're really, really going for maybe a bit of Chinook, I think. Um, and then we've got a barley wine from Siren, of course. Um, and uh, Autumn is a, a green hop beer, green hop golden ale on cask with Elusive. Um, but the one I've got for summer is it's a Czech style Pilsner from Lost and Grounded called Sunshine State of Mind. Um, so it's it's a pretty traditional, pretty traditional Czech Pilsner. So it's it's all SARS hops. It's got a single decoction, probably a double decoction would be used for a beer of this strength generally because it's five percent. Um, but because it's lost and grounded, Alex has fermented it bone dry. So it's really crisp, absurdly drinkable. And I bet I finish this before you guys finish your IPA. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a challenge. <laughs> Ready, steady, cheers. <laughs> cheers. That's stupidly dangerously drinkable, Colonel IPAs, isn't it? It's um, not very bitter on the, on the finish, though. It's certainly really, not as... really soft, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's a really soft mouthfeel, and, and the the head retention is quite uh, soft as well. They're like very foamy. Um, there's a lot of I'm getting a lot of lots of orange on this one, and it is almost. It hasn't got that earthiness, you know, the earthy dryness that you associate a lot of time with Colonel. That seems to be missing on this occasion. But it's, I mean, it's really tasty, very drinkable, and would sort of sit quite nicely between people who love your West Coast and your East Coast, I reckon. Maybe that's what yeah. we're going for. The, the the classic mountain style IPA. That's the one, that was the phrase, exact phrase I was looking for. So is that, <laughs> does that become an MS IPA? I'm not sure that's the, the, the abbreviation you want. <laughs> no, probably not. Um, yeah, it's it's actually my kind of favourite style of IPA because I do love those those juicy flavours you can get from the yeast. But I find New England IPA, particularly double IPAs, just far too sweet. So it sounds like I need to get hold of some Colonel beers because that's right up my street. Yeah, this uh, cracking. This is really nice. As your one, is it as as expected? You've had it before, I assume. Anyway, uh, yeah. Alex very kindly sent me a case. Um, there is not a case in my fridge anymore. Um, I've, I've got to, so I'm going to make a film that sort of talks about the beers that I brewed and brings a bit of the book in. And I've actually got to the point where I've had to hide the final two cans because either either me or any friends that come around will drink that before I filmed it, and I need it. <laughs> so that's <laughs> that's how drinkable it is. I think it's I think it's a brilliant beer. Um, my only criticism would be I'd like a bit more decoction character, but I think Alex Alex wanted it, you know, really dry and, and not too caramelly because. He, he loves a dry lager. While we're drinking through the the, the, the summer beer, I've, I've I've got 
just a couple more questions about the book and the process of, of, of writing it during lockdown. Mm-hmm. It, um, it must have given you a great opportunity to um, play with all the recipes that you've, you've got that feature in the book during that time. Um, how many of those recipes did you get right the first time? How many of them evolved over many days, weeks, months? So the, the pretzel recipe um seven or eight trials to finally get a pretzel id and then probably two to get you know get it properly refined and then most terrifyingly uh, on the final proofing stage of the book somehow along the line probably because i kept changing that recipe it got mixed up with a pancake recipe so <laughs> i opened i opened that page to proof it and it said on the pancake page, it was like, and now placed in the oven for 20 minutes. And I was like, well, you know, pancakes don't go in the oven. Pancakes don't go in the oven. What's happened? <laughs> Not unless you're making Yorkshire puddings. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's true, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that, that one was the hardest to get right. Um, the brownie recipe was actually one from the Craft Beer Channel, which I, you know, pretty much wholesale just planted into the book. But that one, I'd wanted to do an Imperial Stout Brownie for so long on the Craft Beer Channel, and I just couldn't get it right. And in the end, I got, luckily, I know a professional baker, um, who an amazing baker called uh, uh, Bee Berry, who has Bee's Bakery. And she basically rewrote the recipe with me. Um, and we put that interview live on the Craft Beer Channel because I was like, I can't take credit for this. Um, so, yeah, some of, them, some of them were really hard to get right. But that pancake recipe... It was an idea in my head. I did it. It worked. The porter recipe was, I had something similar in a restaurant in uh, in a pub, the Rising Sun in Truro, a really lovely sort of gastro pub in Cornwall. Uh, tasted that and was like, I'm pretty sure I know what's in that. And I went home and made it and, and that was it. Um, so, I mean, it was a lot of fun. I had a lot of time on my hands to get all of that right. Um, what was more fun was doing the photos for that as well. So I bought a, a proper like you'll see in the photos, like an old school board that I could put it all on and just spent five days just cooking up amazing food and then going up to my wife who was working at a desk going, do you want some stew? And then after that, some pretzels and then there's a brownie, but then there's some pancakes. <laughs> just like, um, but they were good days. I think that leads on quite nicely because you've done a few bits about pairing in the book um, and two of them I just want to talk about here. Uh, one of them is probably more obvious, like cheese and beer. Mm-hmm. I think there's quite a lot of people have spoken about cheese and beer, but I sometimes think it's still a bit of an overlooked pairing compared to say and cheese or wine and cheese, um, but also beer and chocolate. I, I struggle. I definitely don't struggle with cheese and beer. Be honest about that. Give me some dairy Lee and beer. And I'd, I think the two go well together, but <laughs> beer and chocolate. I, 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 cause me and Steve did do some, little foodie bits once to see if some foods matched what the beers were saying they were supposed to be like a while back. I can't get on with the sweet stuff in the beer, especially if the beer is already sweet as well. So would you have any tips about pairing the latter, especially beer and chocolate? I think uh, with chocolate, I mean, I talk in the book about the difficulties and I basically say that milk chocolate's probably best left alone. Um, it's just so it, it's so intense, so sweet, and such a sort of signature flavor. I wouldn't really match anything with it. But the the key thing and the thing that people get most wrong with beer and food matching is is actually matching intensity. You know, lots of people say, "Oh, the best thing to have with a curry is a lager," and I say, "Absolutely not. You're not going to taste a lager at all. It's going to taste like soda water." Um, 
So you need to get that intensity correct. So in the book, we've got um, uh, a really heavily fruited, it's a Yonder. Uh, so Yonder have started still using their mixed firm yeasts, but you know, triple fruiting them or whatever the phrase is you want to call them and making them kind of pastry beers. Um, and with white chocolate, that really, really works because you've got intense sweetness on both sides. Whereas if you put that, you know, people will be like, oh, that's a raspberry beer. I'll put that with dark chocolate. If you put those two together, all you're going to do is get the bitterness from the dark chocolate. So for that, you'd need something that's intense in a very different way. So it's it's not only matching the actual flavors, it's matching the intensity of it. Otherwise, you end up unbalanced again. And what would be your chosen beer with a curry? Uh, ooh, great question. Um, I, I'd, I'd probably go for a, a classic mid-century Saison, like Saison Dupont. Um, possibly a, a Weiss beer, maybe if it's got some hop to it. So like the Schneider Weiss Tap 5, the Collab of Brooklyn, I think would be brilliant with curry. Um or, or an IPL could be really, really nice as well. If you want that crisp and that cleanness, but you need some heft so that you're not just sort of wiping out your palate, um, then I'd go, yeah, go for um, something like that. I could definitely say the, the the IPL would probably be out of those three with the ones I'd go for. I think the only reason I probably wouldn't go for the wheat beer, because I tend to overcarb on when I'm having a curry anyway. <laughs> yeah, there is that, that risk. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure I need the wheat beer bit. <laughs> um so in the intensity bit so would you apply so that would apply to the cheese and beer as mm-hmm. well as to the chocolate beer the same principle because i again is there some common not necessarily mistakes but common failings or misconceptions about again how you'd pair your cheese and beer then cheese and beer for me is is really interesting because there's not really a bad beer and cheese match as far as i'm concerned like they share so many incredible characteristics. Um, you know, many, many beers use the same, uh, the same uh, microcultures to create the flavors. Um, some cheeses are beer washed. Uh, they were both, you know, things that the UK was incredibly famous for. They were farmhouse endeavors. They were made by, you know, the Brewsters, the Alewives um, at home. And then they became industrialized by men, taken over by men. And then, you know, fucking Ford came along and went, hey, we could do this cheaper and quicker and at a better margin, um, ruined everything. And we just ended up with cheddar and shit lager. And then we've all started to rediscover it again in the last 20 years. So we've got this amazing revolution in cheese and amazing revolution in beer at the same time. And I just, you know, any cheese and any beer you could probably make work. Um, but, you know, that, that means there's so much you can really do. Um, but in, in the book, what I wanted to do is try and offer something a little bit different. So the classic is like stout and blue cheese. Um, and you could definitely do that. But I thought, you know, uh, a barley wine, add some sweetness. I, I'm obsessed with this idea of making the beer a chutney. So I love having slightly sweeter beers um, with cheese because um, I think, you know, it really sort of stitches together the cheese, the cracker and the beer sort of and the beer working as the chutney. It can really work. Um but then the greatest the greatest food match in the whole world is cheddar and West Coast IPA, which um, if anybody hasn't had it, just I just inhale Montgomery's cheddar and IPA when I'm at home alone. It's just my greatest vice. I just love that combination of like funky cheese and absurd hoppiness and bitterness. It's just like slapping your face, but in a slightly masochistic, beautiful way. 
All right, well, you two can carry on the show now. I'm uh, I'm off to <laughs> get, get some, some cheese. cheese. <laughs> <laughs> and it's wonderfully insightful. And I think the um, the intensity bit is a really is a really good point. The way you've described it there is because I would have gone down that initial route. That example you gave of the uh, dark beer and the you know the, the raspberry flavors with the beer and the dark chocolate. Because in my head, I've had dark chocolate, very nice dark chocolate with, with that sort of raspberries and berries in it. Mm-hmm. so i'm trying to replicate that kind of chocolate with the beer plus the chocolate so oh that's definitely very very i mean you started off by saying you didn't know how you'd get sixty thousand words into the book yeah <laughs> you ended up with seventy thousand, johnny there's so much content in there there is literally so much content in there it's it's a you know a fabulous read and if people want to skim, there's plenty of pictures to before they really delve into the detail. So yeah, and, and that was really enjoyable. key for me. I wanted it to be something where you could pick it up and read it all in one go. But equally, you know, I really hope that people will go, "Ha!" Huh, you know, I've read the whole book, but I've forgotten. You know, it's November now. What happens in November? What do I need to know? Where do I need to get my cheese board from? And what am I going to be matching with it? Um, so you can just sort of dip in and, and go. I fancy a cheese board. I'll see what hopefully what Johnny said and, and see if it works. But cheese is for life, not just for November. I I, I totally agree. Um, <laughs> really, every chapter should have had a cheese and beer matching uh, <laughs> section. Maybe maybe there's there's your next book, Johnny. Just cheese can, and you, beer. You can have that one on me. <laughs> as long um, as Steve gets invited to the launch night, <laughs> you're in. You could be on the tasting panels. You're in. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, you spoke about um, Easter beers. Um, we would be. Uh, it would be remiss of us to not mention two specific style of beers when we're talking about a year in beer and, and, and seasonality, and that would be the dreaded pumpkin beer and <laughs> also the the idea of Christmas beers. So, where where do you stand on those two particular styles? Can we call them? Are they, are they styles, or where, where 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 do you stand on them? I mean, I yeah, I don't think they're styles. I think I think they're approaches. They're concepts. Um, p- pumpkin beer, I think the concept is a lot of fun. I don't think that the idea of a pumpkin beer is any more ridiculous than most of the pastry stouts that have 4.6 on untapped. Um, but most pumpkin beers are bad. Um, I think because they're treated, like a lot of non-Belgian Christmas beers, they're treated as novelty. If you go to Belgium and speak to a brewer about their Christmas beer, they're dead fucking serious about the recipe, about the approach, about the ideas behind it. If you go to an English brewer, they're like, yeah, we put some cinnamon in that. Thought it'd be all right. And then they they put a novelty Santa on it and go Christmas beer. And then just really hope it sells before people discover it's shit. And they have to, I don't know, drain pour it in January. Um, and, and the same is kind of true of pumpkin beer. I mean, there was this phase, and I understand why people hate pumpkin beer, because there's this phase where it was all you people talked about for like a month and a half. And that expanded to like two and a half months because people started releasing them in August. But I think, you know, fundamentally, like we've talked about Elusive already, but uh, Andy's um, uh, Carven Yams, which is, um, it's got real pumpkin in, but you, you probably wouldn't know it. I think it adds a little bit of caramel maybe, but it's hidden by all the dark malts of the porter anyway. But, you know, it's just a heavily cinnamon nutmeg um, and kind of 
you know, British hop spicy kind of porter. And it's a little bit sweeter than his usual porters. And I just think it's a really lovely car scale to have in, in sort of October time. Um, so it's, you know, I'm so behind the idea of pumpkin beer. I just think that taking the novelty out of it would be great. It's not like pastry stout where the silliness of it makes me excited with pumpkin beer. I'm like, no, I want to, I want to see this beautiful secret, secret blend of spices that you're using and, and see it done well. Um, and Christmas beer is one of my favorite things on earth. Um, one of my favorite beers in the world is St. Bernard's Christmas. Um, but again, they're, they're quite refined. Like I hate the Gooden Carolus one, which is I think the best selling one. And it's just like liquid licorice and it's more, it's horrendous to me. It's novelty. I'd never dismiss novelty in beer. I think people should enjoy the novelty, but it's not, not for me. I think that's quite a, a, a key point there that, that you said, right. As, as, as you started talking about the Christmas beers in, in terms of the, the, the approach that Belgian brewers have have to their Christmas beers, whereas in, in the UK, it generally does tend to be regional breweries rebranding their best bitter by dumping a load of Christmas spices in it. Um, where, where do you think that approach has come from, particularly in, 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 in Belgium? Oh, I'm glad you asked, Steve. There is, it's one of my favourite sections of the book where I give the history of Belgian Christmas beer. Um, Belgian Christmas beer uh, started in Scotland. Um, so the Scottish, uh, the Belgians were in love with Scotch ale. So big, sweet, amber, um, very smooth beer. And they were selling a lot of it to Belgium, uh, I think at the turn, of the turn of the 19th century, I think it was. Um, and some enterprising salespeople in Belgium decided to buy some slightly stronger versions from Scotland and they relabeled it Christmas Scotch Ale. So the entirety of Belgium who loved Scotch Ale and were buying huge amounts of it then associated slightly big, sweet, caramelly beers with Christmas. And so the Belgian brewers... As, as Belgium started to really get its act together and produce beautiful, you know, non kind of lambic beers, that that was the start of the inspiration. So they were like, it's big and it's sweet and, you know, it's not boozy. And that's what matters. So it's big, it's sweet, it's drinkable. And I think that over time, a little bit of spice has crept in there because they want to add a seasonality to it. But mostly it's about that malt character that those Scotch ales had and being incredibly clean. So they never overdid it. They were like, it's a, it's Scotch ale based. It's got to be beautifully clean and drinkable. Whereas England then looked at all the spices and went, oh, that's how you do it. And did all the spice stuff without thinking about the origins of the Scotch ale. Um, so yeah, I, th I think that's where it comes from because the brewers there, their recipes are based off of a very different thing. Uh, that's fascinating. Uh, <laughs> I, I, no, that, that, that really is. And there's, there's, there's loads of little bits like that in the book as, as well, where you do delve into some of the historical side of things. I think from, from having only skim read it in, in, in preparation for chatting to you this week, um, I, I can say that, that the balance that you seem to have struck between here's a bit of history, here's a bit of beer, here's some bits you can do with food and beer, and here's the whole context around seasonality, struck such a nice balance in, in, in terms of how it all weighs up together through, through the book. And it does, it does really take the reader um, without making it sound like a cliche, it takes the reader reader on a journey throughout, you know, starting in January and going right through the year until December. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, it was 
that that was part of the the whole thing of being like can i fill this book and it was like you know i could write about st patrick's day and talk about all you know the amount of guinness that's drunk and i do reference that but really i was like how do i write a chapter on the fact that suddenly we all drink stout in march well, and we're all irish as well aren't we and we're all irish for a couple of days yeah yeah like how do I write about that in a relevant way? And in the end, I, you know, I write about a walking tour I took through East London, trying to find a pub that said Porter on the side, not Stout, and told the history of Porter through that. And then went, you know, isn't it mad um, that Porter died such a death completely and was completely taken by Stout because Guinness, you know, just reinvented what we considered a Stout was. Stout's just a strong Porter, but now it's a 4.2% nitrogenated dark beer. Um, and sort of, you know, talking about how seasonality isn't just about the weather. It's about hu- humanity's imprint on it as well. It's like, yeah, dark beer is probably nicer in February and March, but why does it have to be nitrogenated? Wh- what has St. Patrick got to do with it? St. Patrick had fuck all to do with beer. They, they thought that he was the patron saint of beer, but really because he was stood next to a barrel in some paintings, but actually the barrel was full of dead kids. It wasn't full of beer. So <laughs> it's just like all these human errors that are sort of, resulted in us drinking whatever it is three million pints of um of guinness on the 17th 18th of march 14th sorry ireland 17th 17th, 17th of march <laughs> how could you not get that date oh no i'm gonna check the book and check i've got it right in there <laughs> just uh just the final word on, on on the book then because um i have nearly finished my ipa and i can still see that you're still drinking your lager oh my god um, but you, yours was a 440ml can. We're, we're only on 330ml bottles, it so, was, so thanks, you Steve. can be forgiven. Um, yeah, just just kind of a, a final word on, on the book. Without, again, without giving too much away, because obviously what, what, what you want people to do is, is go out and buy it and read it. So, you, you, you know, you do question throughout the book if seasonality is a thing. And there was a, a particular line towards the end of the book that, that really summed it up for me and it's it's something that Martin and I have spoken about on on a number of occasions and it's it's something in particular when we did the show with Ken Grossman from Sierra Nevada he even said the same thing and that was that the context matters as much as the beer itself how, how important is that when it comes to not even seasonality just enjoying a beer at any time of the year I think so, so I've been in the beer industry, you know, working in the beer industry now for nine, nine years. And the thing that I've learned most is that beer doesn't change as much as you think it does. It's you that changes. So when people say this recipe is not the same and you see, you look the brewer and he's just, he, he or she, they're just baffled. They're like, it's the same recipe, the same suppliers, you know, of course there's a seasonal element. And I talk about that in the book, but, when you have it, where you have it, what you ate beforehand, who you're talking to, what music's playing, what kind of glass you're drinking from, what the temperature is in the room, whether you're happy or sad that day, whether you're distracted or, you know, really focused on the beer. All this doesn't just affect your enjoyment of beer, it affects the literal flavour. And that's what I was trying to get across in, in, in a book about seasonality. It was like, as much as it's, you know, our journey around the sun every year, it's also our personal journeys and, and, and how they're affected and how much they change. Um, so, yeah, who, what's outside of the glass is, is, is 
I think more important than what's in the glass. If you're going to a good brewery, you're going to Lost and Grounded or Colonel, it's very unlikely you're going to have a bad beer. But like, I got a, I got a tweet from somebody, Colonel were in my book, um, uh, the London Craft Beer Guide, and somebody messaged me going, I went to Colonel, had a terrible time, rude staff, terrible beer, thanks for the tip. Um, and I just responded, I, I just responded, I was like, I can assure you, you know, with all due respect, I can assure you, the beer was not bad. So I'm sorry the staff were rude because that probably ruined it for you. Um, he didn't respond. But my, <laughs> my point was sort of like, that. I know you haven't gone there. And I think he said like, we had like three beers all shit. And you're like, you can't go to Colonel, have three beers on the trot that are drain pours. I'm sorry. I just don't think that's possible. Particularly because, you know, like he probably loved all the other beers on the Bermondsey Beer Mile and Colonel are the best on the Bermondsey Beer Mile. So you know that just didn't ring true and it was the context of what he was drinking um and then also this week we put an untapped a video about untapped and talks about the issues with untapped and how people everybody rates like a beer is made in a vacuum and drunk in a vacuum and people are like you should just rate what's in the glass i just think that's that's patent nonsense you, you shouldn't you should rate what's in the glass but you should be rating you know you should go the extreme example is don't rate a sour if you don't like sour beer but the less extreme example is don't say a lager's rubbish if you drank it, you know, warm, sat next to a radiator while your partner screamed at you for drinking too much, because that rating of that beer is not going to be great. So, you know, the, the, the context is everything with everything that we do. This podcast, some people enjoy it. Some people won't. The people on the treadmill are desperate for a beer right now. And they're probably like, screw those guys. Whereas somebody sat there with a beer going, this is the best podcast I've ever listened to. I'm going to buy that book. Well, what, what, what was your final thoughts on the IPA Citra Columbus from the Colonel? For me, Colonel is always drinkable. Um, but that, that earthiness, that dryness that you, I normally associate with their beers, usually it, it makes it drinkable, but you have to work a little bit harder because there is that earthiness and dryness to it. Whereas this one was so soft, but without that New England type of the sweet, possibly potential cloyness, it was still clear. It had lovely head retention, loads of bags of flavours, but it stopped. It didn't have the that bitter, dry finish that I often associate. And that I had to drag out the 330, to be honest, the 330 ball. And at 6.8... I reckon that a few of those could put you on your ass if you're in the tap room. Easily, yeah. Um, I agree to a certain extent. Um, I kind of missed the earthy bitterness fr from it. It was um, maybe a little bit too soft for for me. I, I, I would have liked a bit more. I, I think there was a there was a bit of an underlying dankness going on with, with it as well, and I'm I'm not sure whether that was coming more from the Columbus hop than the citrus hop, because what I wasn't getting was that normal, crisp, citrus bitterness that you normally associate with citra. Um, it, it seemed as though that was very muted in, and, and, and in the background. So, yeah, it was, an, it was an enjoyable beer. I think I would have rather a bit more bitterness on the finish, though. Fair enough. It's also what we used to from the kernel as well, isn't it? So yes. you would have had yeah. an expectation level at the start of that. Probably a factor on tap rating that expectation, wouldn't it, Martin? Just, stop, just saying. Stop, stop. <laughs> Have you finished your lager yet, Johnny? I finished my lager. Yeah. Don't say it like that, like you knew I wouldn't. I got there. <laughs>
<laughs> I was pretty confident you'd finish a lost and grounded lager. <laughs> Let's move into the autumn then, um, which is obviously quite topical for as the, the, the time of year that we're actually recording this podcast mm-hmm. as we're coming into to mid-September. Um, for Martin and I, we are on the Colonel's Brown Owl. And this was uh, brewed with Amarillo. Um, Johnny, what are you moving on to? I'm I'm having a bottle of the the Harvey's Bonfire Boy, which um, is it even says on the back it says brewed seasonally. Thank you, Miles, uh, for the November fifth celebrations. Um, so you think it's a smoky beer, but he actually only uses black malt. There's no actual smoked malt going in there. I think because you know regional UK cast brewers don't want huge intense flavors so he's just gone for a bit of black malt for that smoky bitterness uh, but i've never had this beer before so i'm excited to to give it a go and in terms of autumn what what are the sort of characteristics that we'd be looking for 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 our beer at this time of year so i mean there's two big sort of chapters in the book and two big moments in in brewing and and that is sort of march uh so you, in the uk you used to have march and october beers um in um in germany you'd have obviously Merzens, which were brewed in march but actually drunk at oktoberfest they were invented for oktoberfest back in i'm gonna say 1849 i think was spartan's first um first Merzen. but so yeah you you brew lots in march because that's the end of the brewing season before it gets too warm to brew and then you brew lots in october once you can brew again you've got the fresh hops and the fresh malts um so because of that there's two sides you've got the the seasonal brewing which is using the fresh malts, using the fresh hops. So you'd expect lots of fresh hopped, green hopped bitters, green hopped porters, green hopped golden ales, loads of fresh, almost like grape like, really sort of delicate aromas from those green hop beers. But you're also, you're getting into the darker of autumn. So red IPAs, smoked beers. I've got a, a wonderful um, sort of three or four pages all about tour side that really focus on smoked beers. Um, so starting to, to darken the colours, up the ABVs and increase the intensity of the non-hop characteristics. So even the green hop beers, they're more muted in terms of, you know, the, the citrus, the pine, the juice. And it's more about earthiness, um, grassiness, um, hedgerow kind of flavours, blackberries, stuff like that. So that's why I expect in autumn, and that suits the food. Let's, uh, let's dive into, in, into the beers and have a taste of autumn. Cheers. Cheers. Another another shit beer from the Colonel then, Steve. We've been awful in <laughs> choosing these ones. But what I want to say is that it's a 5.3% brown ale that almost when we're talking about seasons, we started off recording this at really bright, still a little bit of warmth, and now it's dark. And we're just sitting really perfectly now. But also... Doesn't it make you wonder, though, when you start drinking these beers in the seasonality point of view, that you think, I should just be drinking brown ales a lot more often if I could get hold of them? Because, again, especially then, the Colonel, this is just delicious, this brown ale. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, I don't know if it's the right phrase, but like it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, these beers don't sell, so the brewers don't make them, which means the brewers aren't so good at making them, which means they won't sell. So it. You know, I mean, half the reason that I was really up for the challenge when camera gave it to me is because something I really want to champion is diversity in what we actually brew. Because, you know, I love IPAs as much as anybody, but 
what I really want when I walk into the bar is an option to have something other than an IPA or a lager or a stout. I want to see the brown ales, the red ales, the kettle sours next to the mixed firms. I want to see all of that so I can mix it up. And at the moment, because we've gone so far into the IPA and lager sort of uh, sort of world, you have to push really hard just to get one brown ale on tap, you know? And And I really hope that, you know, this book might seed something in some people's minds to start to be like, you know, I would really like to see some more brown ales at this time of year, even if it's just for two or three months. Um, and it's why I never speak bad of pumpkin ales as well, because often they're dark and I'm like, that's great. If there's variation, that's great. What do you think of the brown ales, Dave? I'm really enjoying it. Um, I'd, I'd agree with all that you you said about it. It's uh, it's fairly more forward. There's some some dark fruit stuff going on in there and and then there is this just sort of lovely balanced there's there's a slight I, i'd say a slightly spicy finish to it but that's really balances out with the bitterness on on, on the finish of it as well and it, it just it all works together so well um and and yeah it, it is amazing that we don't see more of this style of beer these these days i think it's 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 true what what, what johnny was saying there you know we'd, we we are very much at a stage where if you walk into a in, into a bar that's got 12 taps 11 of them are ipas and and then you've got a lager um and it's that can't be sustainable surely we need to start moving away from having all of these th- th- these ipas all of the time and i don't think i ever thought i'd hear myself saying that um but maybe i'm that's more in terms of having that many new england style ipas the 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 more hazy sort of stuff that i don't enjoy drinking i'm 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 very glad to see that we're seeing more and more west coast style ipas making a bit more of a resurgence now is i've talked about this a lot um in in stuff that i've written and and, and podcasts that, that i've done on my podcast but talking about this kind of swing that beer always takes where we get obsessed with one thing and i think that new england ipa in particular sort of disrupted the entire evolution of the british beer scene because just as a just as we were getting really good at west coast beers new england came along and distracted us so we didn't build this base of um build this base of amazing uh amazing west coast brewers of amazing lager brewers of amazing mixed firm brewers and we're sort of playing catch up off the back of that um so we have you know every brewery that opens in the uk now kind of needs to have a new england ipa if they've got any ambition of doing any volume um whereas you know in america everywhere that i've traveled in america there's been so much more diversity in terms of what people are producing um even you know, you even look at the people that sort of started that movement, you look at Treehouse now, and it used to just be today's offering four IPAs. Now, I mean, Treehouse have four IPAs, two stouts. They they have a brown ale called Old Man Ale, which I take issue at, but still it's, it's that style of beer. They make their own coffee, their own spirits, and they've all diversified because, you know, they can off the back of the, the kind of money that they've made. And I really hope that the UK finds its feet again and starts going no there's there's value there's opportunity and there's interest in doing stuff that isn't incredibly hop forward even if you love the incredibly hop forward stuff we're so well set um so yeah i mean that from a like a campaigning perspective that was the point of the book <laughs> i think we're heading that direction i mean if you if we take cloud water as an example they definitely went down the route of 
a very similar sort of type of beers. And I, I had the feeling now over the last uh, six to nine months, maybe even a year, but they seem to have broken out of their own shackles that they put on themselves. And they're doing a lot more variety again, and they're doing it really well. I've had some West, some West Coast-inspired American pale ales and IPAs from them recently, and they've all been really good. And then some of their limited bottle series have been very good. I mean, they're sort of snake bite. So I think they've, they've sort of thrown off their own shackles a bit again. And if, you know, Cloudwater are one of the leading lights, then I think other people will start doing the same thing. And I think, you know, while I don't think I've been in many bars, which has got such a, a limited range versus so many taps that maybe Steve described, there are definitely times when just turning it on its head a little bit, as well as the variety of beer styles, variety of ABVs would be nice as well to mm-hmm. accompany those beers. You know, I don't want to be... You, uh, sometimes they f- you feel like it's all 6% plus. For me, that's also a failing. Mm-hmm. So I think diversity in beer is also styles and ABVs that's trying to appeal to as many people as possible and do it well. Yeah, I, I talk about that in the book as well. Like in January, you know, obviously there's an inevitable chapter about dry January. And I, I do a piece on dry January. I did dry January this year to try it out. But what really excites me is the brewer's you know, like Beak with Lula, like Small Beer Co. with all of their beers, like Colonel Table Beer's always been. It's it's brewing beer that isn't seen as particularly different from the five, six, seven percent stuff, but it's just so much lower ABV and across lots of different styles. Like new um, non-alcohol is seen as an entirely different category, which means lots of people won't touch it. They're like, well, it's not real beer, or I want some kind of buzz, I want some kind of interest, I want enough flavor. And that's where these lower ABVs can sit. And the UK is fabulous at making these kinds of beers we have so much resource so much know-how in making a fucking brilliant three three and a half beer it's what we're known for around the world and actually our craft brewers haven't really tapped that up because we've been too excited by the big stuff but it's starting to happen i think hopefully it sort of illustrates just the wide range of topics that you managed to cover in this book <laughs> it was uh i mean i you know i like to think that people will learn a lot reading this and I think I know they will because I learned a lot researching it. You know, I, I didn't literally, because it was 70,000 words and it was supposed to be 60, I didn't have room for a dedication page. But you know, Martin Cornell, Ron Patterson, Mark Dredge, um, I mean, those three, three guys, without them, the book wouldn't have happened because all the history um, comes from either reading the books of, of, of Ron um, and Martin um, or chatting to Mark Dredge. Mark Dredge big shout out to him i went for a walk with him in a park because i was starting the book and i didn't know how to stitch it together and i spent an hour walking around the park with him and i had it all figured out and i have so much respect for him as as, as a book writer um and and yeah like i learned i will drink beer differently for the rest of my life as a result of writing this and i really really hope that i have some of that effect on the people that read it and when's it available johnny so it's technically available from now. Uh, okay. If you order it, order it from camera, uh, they're starting to release it. But the official launch is on the 27th. Um, and I'm having a big old party at the Beer Merchants Tap on the 30th. Okay. And again, what we'll do is put links in the show notes to where you can buy the book and the details of the event if you are around and want to get along for, for the launch. Um, all the best of luck with it, Johnny. It is a, as, as I say, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a wonderful journey through the year um and i think we have been uh blessed 
this year with uh, a number of, um, I want to say, new book releases for camera. They, they seem to have gone in a different direction. They've obviously, they've got people like yourselves and, and, and Matt Curtis, who's recently just obviously bought out his book as well, that are, are very different from what camera would have previously published. Um, and I think it's great to see that they're embracing that and going in a slightly different direction with their publications. Yeah, I mean, that that's what the approach to me was. It was like, they, they came to me and they said, like, we don't quite know what we want you to write, but we'd love you to do a book with us. So that conversation started. I think based off of their members saying, you know, you're releasing similar books year after year with similar writers. And I really hope that me and, and Matt and Gabe um, can have a big success with this and that then they'll turn to Claire Bullen, Lily Waite, maybe Jager Wise, like, and, and keep that going and keep bringing in more and more new more diverse writers into the fold. I really hope that's that's what happens. Well, before uh, we finish the Brown Owl, because I'm aware that we're three seasons <laughs> through and, <laughs> and, and we've only got winter to go, we should probably get on to this week's question. Opinions, 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 opinions. And that was uh, to tie in with the theme of seasonality, do you find you change what you drink according to the seasons? So we had 539 votes on this. 11.5% um, of people went for yes, everything changes. 56% of people went for some changes. And 32.5% went for no tasty beer always. Let's dig into some of the comments we got. Bring on the beer. Yes, but only mildly, but I'm more likely to hit the cider and lager in the summer only. But I drink ale, craft, cider, lager all year round, mostly because I'm a heathen and everything I drink gets fridged to within an inch of its life. From Rob Edwards, I voted some changes. When it comes to drinking out, choice available is a factor. More dark beers are usually available in the colder months. If I like a beer, then the season isn't going to influence me too much, though. From Great Hop Forward, can't say I get a hankering for barley wines, quads or icebox in the summer. Hefts and wits don't have the same appeal in winter. Fresh hop and pumpkin beers have short season. ESP, IPA, Saison are enjoyable anytime. So for me, some changes. From Sophie at So Beer Blogger, without knowing it, I save most of my darker beers for the winter months as it just doesn't feel right to drink them when the weather is really hot. Also, as soon as we get to October, I'm ready for more spicy styles and pumpkin beers. From Point to Brew, inevitably some changes for me as I don't do stouts, so my beloved sours disappear during the stout season. However, black IPAs keep me warm during the winter. From Graham Hughes, more cars because the temperature drops for sure from mike mcguire some changes defo yet as the nights get longer and the weather cooler i do crave a good stout porter red owl etc though when you've drank a lot of dark beers a nice ipa or sour does wonders to refresh the palate conversely after a session on the ipa i tend to finish dark from the owl lady i definitely change there's nothing like a good rib sticking dark brown owl impy stout or barley wine when it's chilly out properly warms the cockles 
I'll still drink the occasional dark beer in the summer, but don't get as much pleasure from it as my cockles don't need warming. No matter what the style, I tend to go for lower ABVs in the warm weather too, as the sun turns me into quite the guzzler. James at Gamma Baron. It starts with Oktoberfest beers, then moves on to Nutty Brown Autonomal Ales, then goes darker in December and hashtag 12 beers of Christmas. Joey Hill, Multiplex Rant. A bit, though to an extent it reflects what breweries produce. For example, I love a red ale, but you don't often see them outside of autumn. From Jack Delaney. Like a lot of breweries, we go into the fabled stout season when the nights close in. I'll undoubtedly drink more darker beers because more people will be making them. But if I could get my hand on a lower ABV stouts porters year round, I'd drink them. And then finally from Rob Zilla at Rob Many Handles. Availability inevitably enacts at least some change on what we drink or buy, especially with certain styles being seasonal. That said, I've never quite understood why dark beers, for example, are seen as winter beers. And that's a really interesting point to finish on. Um, Why do you think that is, Johnny? Why do you think that we perceive darker beers as, as, as being winter beers? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because it, it's it's entirely ahistorical, you know. Um, the change of colour in beer, you know, almost all beer was dark until until sort of British malting techniques really started to spread um, after the, the Hebrew at Spartan um, and the Hebrew of um, what became Schwachach, Schwach, no, the Vienna Brewery, um, <laughs> traveled to the uk and learned those methods from from the brits it was all kind of amber or dark or brown so yeah there's no historical reason for it other than you know maybe mild well mild was drunk by everybody um i think it's the food i think it, it's food and beer matching i think we slowly learned that the foods that we were having in winter once you get into game season once you get into root vegetable season that the darker beers started to be a little bit better with the food we were drinking i think also in the uk we take that to a much um, take the idea of seasonality of, of, of the beers being dark to, to a much bigger extreme than, than most because we embraced pale lager much, much later than, than most countries. So, you know, we, we were drinking lots and lots of dark beer. I think if you go over to, to Germany, stuff like that, like the Schwartz beers and stuff like that, probably are even smaller than our sort of stout categories. So I, I, I think it must be the food. I'd love to hear your thoughts because it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I just, I wonder if it's purely, whether it's, it's purely an environmental thing. It's, it, it's dark outside, so you want something dark in mm-hmm. the glass. Yep. Um, I, I think a, a few people, I'm, I'm not sure that, that, that maybe we didn't read out from those comments there. I think a few people referenced like a warm hug in a glass or, almost. You, you kind of get that from your, your big imperial stouts, your, your barley wines, your quads. And yeah, you don't necessarily want that when it's when it's hot and it's light outside you you don't want you don't want your evening to finish early however in the winter you're quite happy to be wrapped up in bed by sort of nine o'clock because it's been dark for hours so you 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 just kind of you you want to embrace what what's going on I think it's 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 really quite strange in, in in terms of how we do tend tend to switch because I I guess going back to the original question and you know our listeners will know that I am I really am a seasonal drinker so I as as the nights are already beginning to draw in 
I'm already thinking about what dark beers have I got in the cupboard because that's the way that I want to go rather than turn into the lighter, more refreshing stuff. It, it's a really good point that like, I've talked a lot about the context of the beer mattering and, you know, even simpli- simplistic things like it's dark outside, I want a dark beer. That can be a, a small little factor that's stacked on top of, you know, I had, I had beef for dinner, um, for pudding, I had chocolate or whatever it is. Um, there's a chapter in the book as well that is all about what beers to drink by the fireside which initially was an idea I had and I was like that's quite a crass idea but the more I dived into it the more I realised that with the exception of some some Belgian beers darker malted beers taste pretty good warm compared to blonde beers so drinking it by the fire where the beer is probably going to get warm quite quickly because you've got this raging inferno a couple of feet away um it's going to be a bit better. And that logic extends to the fact that, you know, uh, Guinness is incredibly popular in West Africa, in the West Indies. Um, So, you know, there's definitely, weirdly, although it's cold outside, being in a warm room, actually the dark beers start to make a little bit of sense. So I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's lots and lots of very different reasons that slowly add up to just being like, yeah, I think it's a dark beer night. Mm um there's also in terms of the flavors so just this beer uh the harvey's beer that i'm drinking the bonfire boy uh miles i'm sorry it has zero smoke to it but um it has lots of delicious flavors that are really seasonal like it smells because of his yeast because of the tiny bit of acetaldehyde he gets like the green apple thing some caramelized banana notes like it's like it's like a liquid toffee apple and that's incredibly seasonal so those flavors just take me immediately to being like a kid going to the fair with my parents like following me at 10 paces in case I get lost, but me pretending I'm an adult and I'm free. And it's given me these really nostalgic feelings. And I think that that's also something that really feeds in those dark malts. Don't just go with the food. They have the same flavors as the food, which invokes real nostalgia. Cool. Now, you were quite um, surprised by the results of, of this poll, weren't, weren't you? Because it didn't really lend itself to what you was hoping it would be oh yeah i was being a bit facetious in that tweet where i was like this bodes well it's like um i i guess i guess i kind of expected it but i was hoping i was hoping for more people to vote that everything changes but i think that's mostly down to the fact that now as a result of writing this book i now uh look at it in a different way i look at um brewing seasonally because as far as i'm concerned every beer that's ever brewed is seasonal you know uh, like a classic British car scale, right? Has probably it's got Marisotta in it. That's an autumn sown barley. So immediately, you know, that's a seasonal beer because that was sown in autumn specifically. It was harvested at a specific time. It'll be different every year. So there's a seasonal element to every beer that we drink. So in that poll, like the real, like, uh, excuse me, kind of person would be like, well, every bit seasonal. So I think I kind of forgot that when I looked at the poll that there's this sort of new angle I'm trying to push with the book and go, everything is seasonal. How much of it is choice is, is the interesting question. Um, but I, I was quite pleasantly surprised by how many people do change a little bit, I think. And I think that re- listening to those comments that you guys were reading out, I reckon there's probably a lot of people that are, uh, are at home were sort of nodding along going, oh, actually, yeah, I do that as well. And that, and I agree with that. And suddenly maybe some of the people that put not at all tasty beer always are like, oh, actually, maybe I do drink a little bit seasonally. Mm. Well, I think two thirds had changes of some sort, didn't they? Mm. So, but yeah, if you throw in somebody, maybe some of the unconscious 
choices we make based on everything else. Maybe some of it is based on availability or some of your favourite breweries bring out some of their, their specials and that lends itself to the, the seasonality. Um, I mean, I'm very much in the sum changes. I've still got default IPA syndrome, um, which I'm not sure is ever really going to go away. But, you know, if I had a regular supply of some of these brown owls from the kernel, I'm sure I'd be having a few more of those. And that end of evening, sometimes during the summer months, I still want the crisper, crisper, refreshing beers. But I think, you know, Steve made a good point there about you don't mind your evening finishing a little bit earlier during the darker months because it feels like it's been nighttime since about half four. So, yeah, you might crack open the um, the heftier beer earlier and then you're sort of done. But you will start thinking about it a bit more. Whereas during the summer, I don't plan my last beer quite so much. Autumn and winter I do, and inevitably it will be a darker beer. Mm-hmm. But I probably weren't thinking about it in season seasonality terms, though. Well, yeah, I, th- I think that's it. It's, it's a frame of looking at it. There's lots of different ways of looking at, at beer. You could look at it from a local perspective, from a modern perspective, from a seasonal perspective. And, you know, it, it's kind of how you look at it as to how you make your decisions, but they're all kind of feeding in. I mean, we had loads of uh, great comments this, this week. And as always, that was just a snapshot of um, what everybody fed back. Keep using the hashtag opinions and we'll continue to find you. And you may very well find yourself in this next part of the show. Let us know. Write it down. Let us know. Write it down. Let us know your thoughts and bitter in lingerness. Write it down. First up, Lee in Brew York. Firstly, happy fifth birthday for the show. It's been amazing to share your journey as a listener and now work together as a collaborator. Just wanted to get my claim in for the first listen to this week's show as I was up at 4am to come and brew. And what better than to have you guys reminisce about the last five years as my soundtrack. My only disappointment with the show was that Steve missed the Easter egg on the barrel-aged Mockerman Randy Savage can. Yummy, as the last scriptures, wasn't as we ran out of words. It was, in fact, making the first letter of each of the five words spell Randy. You know how we like our wordplay. However, I guess the ABV dulled your senses, so I'll forgive you this once. Here's to another excellent five years. I had no idea. I had no, no well, idea. To be, to be fair, I think we both agreed that, well, they must have just run out of words, but that was a hefty, and you were a couple of ABV above me before you even got to that one as well. From Johnny Beerboy, just finished listening to this. Mega shows require commute and morning break. And really enjoyed you guys rounding up the best bits of your five years together. And by the way, top pronunciation work once again, Steve. Apparently, I still just can't say Birmingham. I get it wrong, no, no matter how I pronounce it. Pretty certain that Johnny has got one weekend booked in 2022 away, which may or may not clash with Summer Sesh. Mm. Sorry, Johnny. Oh, well. Uh, from Hugh at H Yardley 33, excellent show. 1,000 beers is impressive for the podcast alone. From Rich Taylor, brilliant show and happy birthday. It was great hearing all those highlights and memories. And here's to another five years of beers, adventures and opinions. On Beer O'Clock Show Rants, they all have their place in the shows, but I think any rant about spoons always makes me smile. So here's to more of those. 
And from Luan Brew, gutted that we won't be able to celebrate the club in person as we're away, but we are celebrating a big birthday, not mine, the weekend before at Brew York Beer Hall. So hopefully we'll get to try the red dancing there. From Pete at Hops and Hoops, great trip down memory lane. I started listening at the tail end of the Beer O'Clock Show. So you guys have helped me through many a session of cooking, dishwashing, and more latterly dog walks over the far, past five years. From 4P at Longhead23, happy fifth birthday opinions. Still not old enough to drink. I started my beer journey five years ago in November, so you have accompanied my whole beer life. Thanks. It's been emotion. From Simon Dewhurst, great episode, guys. A very fitting tribute to five years of wonderful beery memories. And I always love seeing the bi-weekly tweet to see the episodes out. In terms of a classic rants, my favourite would still be the one about the camera COVID-19 glasses. And then from Mark Johnson, behind on episodes for various reasons, wasn't looking forward to this as the brewery profiles didn't grab me on any platform. Instead, it was one of the most enjoyable and informative listens in a while. I'd learned loads, very good stuff all round. And that was about the, that was the Northern Ireland show that, that, that we did. From Ronnie Bean, happy anniversary, lads. Enjoyed the show. Now all I want is a long weekend in Czechia. From Can I Get a Pee? It feels like only a couple of years ago when Martin came on board and since then Opinions has constantly ground away to become the premier podcast it is now. Happy birthday and anniversary, guys. Hopefully we can have some beers and a natter soon. And then finally from James at Gammon Baron, love this podcast, gents, and a lot of fond memories. It's been a halcyon year for the show. Has a date been penciled in for the summer session next year? It has, but I think we're going to hang on until the next show, aren't we, Martin, to reveal more details about what our plans are for Birmingham, 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 Brum next summer. We definitely have plans for Brum and that'll be on the next uh, Us show, Steve. So, yeah, uh, yeah, looking forward to releasing a few little details. While we've been doing that, my brown owl has uh, gone. It's evaporated. It was really tasty, um, really soft, really easy to drink and full of flavour. Uh, how about you, Martin? Yeah, nothing to add. I, I wish that was a... I, actually, I don't often say this about Colonel beers. I would love that in cask. Yeah, I, I think there are a few Colonel beers that I think we'd all like to have a go at on, on, on cask. Um, Johnny, what about the, the, the Harveys? How's, how's that gone down for you? Yeah, it was beautiful. Uh, I loved the the yeast character coming through it. I loved uh, the toffee apple kind of vibe. I'd have, you know, it says smoky flavour on it, and there wasn't much of that. So slight miss billing, but a beautiful, beautiful autumn beer. Um, I also just want to say, like listening to that, the the goodwill and the excitement and the interest that you guys have built up is just just amazing. And I've been listening on and off to to beer o'clock show and opinions for um, well almost since the very beginning. Um, and I remember meeting meeting you, Steve, at that now infamous drinking session uh the swan oh, many God, many yeah. minutes ago goodness um and and uh thinking you were great and, and getting into the podcast after that and you know the it takes a lot of great content a lot of dedication and a lot of hard work to build up a following and an interaction in particular like that so i just want to say well done guys it's i, I love this show thank you really appreciate that I would like to add my thanks to everyone who who did comment on the uh, the five years discussion that me and Steve went down memory lane. And I would also, um, just as I always do around about this time, uh, thank Steve for both inviting me on board five years ago. Uh, blame Steve for inviting me on board five years ago. 
and also for all the hard work that he goes and does with the editing and the show notes. Um, I don't thank him for the WhatsApp that says, I have an idea, though. I know you love those, mate. I, I know you love them. <laughs> um, i tell you what I do love, though. The aroma of this beer I've just poured. Yeah, let's get into winter. This is this is what this whole show has, has been built around. It's, it's the big old bastard of a beer at the end of it. Uh, you and I have moved on to probably one of only two beers that we really could have done from the Colonel. Um, but this is an all-time favourite of mine. We are doing the Imperial Brown Stout London 1856, coming in at 9.5%, this one. And it is a big old beast of a beer, isn't it, mate? It's the, the aroma and the look of it, and at least in the light I've got at the moment, it looks lovely and dark. It just screams winter if i'm being honest yeah. johnny what are you on for winter uh i have poured myself a, a glass of uh, siren maiden 2020 so i'm i'm at the giddy heights of 11 percent abv um and yeah drinking a, a blended barrel aged beautiful barley wine that somewhere in the depths of that glass is a tiny bit of liquid that was in the first ever beer siren brewed so that's what always gets me excited, that little Solera uh, element to this beer. And it, it smells like walking into the barrel room at Siren, just oak, vanilla, and then spirits and some caramel in the background. And I just, it's one of the most exciting aromas. Let's not procrastinate any longer. Let's get in <laughs> and enjoy our winter beers. Cheers. 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 Steve, as you uh, recall at the start of that intro about this being one of your your favourite beers, Colonel, and is it living up to its usual expectations for you? It's fucking delicious. It 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 really is. It's it's thick. It's velvety smooth, and then it just finishes with this lovely dark chocolate roasted dry bitterness that just hangs around in the back of the mouth forever and it is it's one of the 9.5 percent it's dangerously drinkable um it doesn't drink anywhere near that abv yeah because i think everything you said there is right but it's still got quite a light touch to its body yeah so it hasn't got that oily, like slightly unctuous mouthfeel, like you're almost trying to eat it. It still goes down as easily as the brown ale we just had before it. It's got still quite a light touch to it, but despite having all of that. And and there's no boozy warmth to it to it either. It's it's so well made. You don't get any alcohol burn from it. No, no. You know you you know it's a bigger beer than the first one. But they've still made it really drinkable. And like I said, I think because that body is at the right level. In fact, you could argue they've almost underplayed the body for the type of beer it is with all those flavours you described and the 9.5% ABV. It does hide it very well. Johnny, how's the maiden tasting? It's boozy as fuck, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so the complete opposite of everything that we've just said about the kernel. <laughs> There's, um, I'm picking up so much, so much rum loads of banana like like um sort of jack daniel style banana um and then just sticky caramel um 
it's one of those beers actually i think it's almost better with food like if i had some cheese with me right now it would just be singing something really mature or something or something mature and hard or something mature and really oozy and a little bit antisocial um and it would just be amazing um it's, it's quite a lot of the three beers we, we should probably crack on though because this is in danger of being drunk really quickly and and, and we've still got a, a a couple of bits that we need to get through so Johnny, you're not just about the, um, the, the the new book. Um, that's predominantly why you're with us this week is, is, is to talk about that. But obviously there's, there's a whole host of other things that, that you do as well, which many of our listeners will be familiar with. Um, you have appeared with us. Uh, you were on the beer o'clock show way back in way, the way early back, yeah. days. Um, when I think the craft beer channel hadn't, been launched too long and you had you'd done a collaboration beer with brains was it? it was a black ipa oh my god yeah so yeah that was the first summer um that was so we launched in 2013 uh august 2013 and we did that collaboration i think in in august so it was one of the first videos we made and then yeah we must have appeared and yeah as while i was still at, at jamie oliver so we were getting views well beyond our talents uh, off the back of that and and then you joined us um fairly early on in the opinions run um you joined us on uh, opinions episode 48 which was in november 2017 where you took us through a range of belgian beers and what were in your opinion their english counterparts as as well which was quite a journey of discovery that we went on with you and I've it's, it's, it's a show that I've got fond memories of because I was still struggling with Belgian beer back then. And I've, I've turned quite the corner since yeah. then. And I quite enjoy a nice Belgian beer now. Um, <laughs> and I, I don't know whether to give you a big head and say maybe it was down to that show. I mean, I'll take I'll take the big head, certainly. <laughs> um, but. I mean, yeah, it's been really great to see you on social to sort of start to use Belgian-y as, as a compliment. Although occasionally you, you were sort of going a bit too Belgian-y. So a bit of Belgian-y is good. Yeah, I, I like a bit of Belgian-y. I don't like it when it's full-on uh, cloves and banana. That's, <laughs> that's where it goes too far for me. There, there was a beer I nearly had for spring because uh, it is, a, is an Easter beer called Boskun from uh, De Dolle. One of my favourite beers, well, one of my favourite breweries, um, in the world and that beer i mean their yeast profiles are just unreal so i i i almost brought that on as a nod to when i was last on to see if i could sort of bait you but i'd have done it if we were all drinking the same beer to see what your reaction was but um yeah belgian beer has always been a passion for mine because so I, I used to work for jamie oliver that's why the youtube channel started when he started his youtube but i moved on quite quickly after that to become head of marketing at cave direct so that was all belgian beer importing and that you know i enjoyed belgian beer but i was of sort of the left whole garden um you know a little bit further in i started enjoying lambic and stuff but to go out there to have that context to visit you know see cool ships being filled to see the beautiful old coppers of 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 leafman's the the pipe that goes under the entirety of Bruges with um the half man and to start start to see a culture that is almost you know it's still obsessed with beer you know don't overestimate it's still a niche in Belgium but you can drink Westmal in a train station you know that that's the level of um depth to which 
beer has penetrated that particular culture and to see that firsthand blew my mind and I got into Belgian beer probably much earlier than many people do in their beer journeys I think um so yeah I spent four years championing it but uh, yeah that that was my job for four years to persuade people Belgian beer was great and you know still Belgian beer doesn't get the in the UK it doesn't get the the love that it deserves whereas in America it's sort of this tiny niche but of rabid fans over here it's sort of like oh yeah I, you know, I like a, a blonde ale or a Belgian pale but uh, you know I think I think after the UK and the US Belgium has the best beer scene by by a country mile I think you just mentioned there as as, as well that you 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 moved on from your position and what what you moved on to is 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 what you're doing now, which is essentially the freelancing work. So in in addition to the craft beer channel, which continues to grow and and, and grow, and, and and continues to be a lot of people's uh, go to in in terms of YouTube beer content. Um, you also write for Good Beer Hunting as well now, don't you? Yeah, so I started that um, about three years ago, I think. It, it was interesting. Um, I was having this conversation with somebody recently, but um, I, I, I love to be underestimated. And I think the Wildcraft Beer Channel has been, you know, it's made my career. Basically, it, it gave me the opportunity to move to Cave and then take it full time and, you know, get to say to people when I meet them, yeah, I'm a YouTuber. And people are like, nah, you don't, you don't meet people that, a YouTubers that can't be a real job in reality. And I get to say that, but um, it means if you're a YouTuber, particularly in beer, people really dismiss you very, very quickly. And it, it was interesting to see that happen when I, you know, when when I started trying to move fully into the beer industry. And I, I chatted to Michael Kaiser the first time, and he was, I was like, I'd love to write for you. Um, and he was like, Oh yeah, yeah, maybe you could do do some blogs for October, which was. The website they ran with AB InBev for for a while that's that's now closed. That was sort of a bit more entry level. And I was like, no, I want to, I want to write for Good Beer Hunting. And and Matt Curtis actually was the one that backed me. And he said, no, Johnny, Johnny can do this. And I did a piece about Verdant for them, and that changed everything because as much as Craft Beer Channel was like my calling card and my what I spend most of my time on, Craft Beer Channel didn't make any money back then. It still doesn't. It's still a third of my pay, even though it's ninety percent of my time um and so matt gave me that leg up and, and got me into um into good beer hunting and now i get to write five thousand word pieces about why black ipa should be bigger than it is um which is a bizarre situation to be in um but i think you know there's a lot of criticism of good beer hunting i think people think that it's in in the pocket of big brewers but nobody makes better written content than them in the world and i can assure you the editorial is very separate to the studio and um I have so much respect for for Michael um, and now Matt doing Pellicle as well, which I don't write for as much as I'd like to. Um, I think we're very lucky to have those two websites taking the writing side of beer extremely seriously. In terms of the craft beer channel, that's weekly content, is is it? There's a, a new video every week? Yeah. So, yeah, it used to be twice a week, weirdly. Uh, back when I had a full-time job, I was doing two videos a week, but it was more kind of bedroom bloggy. And now it's once a week, every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Um, and then we have the podcast now on Fridays and the feature-length podcast once a month. So we're releasing four videos, four podcasts, and one feature-length podcast every month, which uh, I still sometimes pinch myself and go, how am I doing that? And I think sometimes the quality might show. Uh, how I'm doing that is not what I intend. But yeah, it's... 
um, it's what you have to do, the, the way that the YouTube algorithm works. If you stop publishing for a long time, you just drop off the radar and it's brutal. And there's a lot of talk in sort of the YouTube communities that I sort of operate in now, because, you know, it's a podcast kind of community. There's a writing community. There's a YouTube community as well. And they all talk about burnout because if you, if you miss an upload, you, you, you can see your channel die off. You know, that that's happened. People have lost, lost careers by needing to take a break for mental health or for, you know, having a kid or something. Um, but yeah, so we, we do it every Wednesday um, for, for better or for worse. But again, um, you know, we've managed to build this amazing community that, that means that if that did happen, we'd still have a way back out. We'd still have funding. We'd still have comments. And hopefully we could, ideally, I'd love to do less and better. But sadly, being a writer doesn't allow for that. Well, maybe, maybe that opportunity will build itself in um, to what you do as as it continues to grow, as the follow followership continues to grow as well, maybe the opportunity to, as you say, do less but better will will come up and there'll be the support for that anyway. Hmm. So, you know, I think it's very, you know, the you what you you two do on the on your YouTube channel is still different to what other people do. So there's enough of a point of difference as well. Um, I mean I would I would also note that you haven't put anyone else in bags. Um, since me, <laughs> I completely to, forgot about that episode. Just to reinforce the fact that me and Steve have faces for radio, we turned that up on your podcast. You put a bag over our head. Um, so yeah, I, I, you know, and I think that's the thing because I mean, you know, I, I didn't really watch that much YouTube videos apart from a few beery ones yourself and Hopsy. And there is definitely certain types. There's ones who do some really long form ones, very regularly, and there's ones who obviously decided. I want to do it regularly, but I'm only going to do something that lasts six or seven minutes as well. So there is definitely a finding that balance between what you want to put out, what you can put out and the quality then that goes with it as well. Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, there's two ways of playing YouTube right. And one is to make a couple of videos in like a season, almost like like a TV model. And those videos really explode. They do incredibly well. And then you go away for a couple of weeks and you come back and your first video is big enough that you can go boom and you're back. And then there's other people. And this is the way that most beer tubers operate is upload, you know, Simon real L guide. He, up, he uploads twice a day, 365 days a year. I mean, the, the, the guy is a machine. So does he record? So if we talk about like in TV terms, you know, when they record these quiz, which either come out once a day or once a week, but they record them in blocks, don't they? Yeah. So, is he doing something similar? Yeah, he, he records it all in one night, I believe. So he'll he'll get his 14 beers, he'll review all 14. Then I presumably I presume he sleeps for 12 hours um and, and then puts them live. And that that's how he uh not games the system, that's how he, he plays the system. And it does very well for him. He gets more views than the craft beer channel does every month. Um, but he has I think seven or eight thousand videos, whereas we have about four hundred. And we've been going for a similar amount of time. Um, but that, you know, that's the work ethic that you need to make it work on YouTube. All these people that go like, oh, these people made overnight successes on YouTube. No, you found out about them overnight, but they've all been going for a decade or longer. Um, and, you know, the other option is to, to sort of make that TV model. And it's what we've tried. We made the feature length documentary looking for a New England in 2018. It's, it's nearly an hour and a half long. 
it's a road trip through New England. We visit the Alchemist, Hill Farmstead, Treehouse. Uh, we interview the founders of uh, the Hebrew of Allagash and all this kind of stuff. And we made that. It cost us £4,000 to make, and we've made $30 in revenue from it. Excellent business model there, Johnny. Yeah. So, yeah, we made a loss of four grand. Um, uh, did you have fun doing it? We, we had incredible fun, and I would never change a thing. We love everything about that documentary. From a creative point of view, we're like, that's what we wanted to make. Um, and off the back of that, I still think, you know, it's got about 70,000 views. I think, A, we gained one or 2,000 subscribers from that, but B, we probably gained so many Patreons who went, hey, these guys, they're, they're taking it seriously. They're making stuff up. I want to watch and so it's really tough you know I'm also I'm always watching these YouTube videos about like passive income it's the big the big buzzword in digital digital media it's like you put something out there that's out there forever and it will keep earning money even though you don't have to do anything with it which is a complete misnomer like they say like put a beer course online um, and you'll, you'll, you'll just take money from that you're like yeah but you have to market it you have to spend a couple of hundred quid on the beer. You have to set up the shoots. You have to spend the time. You know, there's no such thing as passive income. Um, but that, I mean, that's almost what you're doing. You're trying to set up for the future when we did that. And it's, it's really worked for us. And during lockdown, our homebrew stuff just exploded. And it's meant we've made friends with Malt Miller. And we're working really closely with them. And they're incredible people um, with an incredible shop, but also incredible knowledge. But then now we're sponsored by Grainfather um all our homebrew stuff so we're starting to build it into a business but you know that's only been you know we're one of the very few businesses that have benefited from lockdown um like the first month people stopped watching they're watching 24 hour news and then we couldn't believe it we were hitting 250,000 list uh, views a month from a base of about 80,000 um and yeah it, it's kind of changed everything but we're very nervous about how we turn that into money because most of the people that have budget other people we don't want to work with they're you know beaver town camden town all these people are constantly well not constantly occasionally emailing us going we'd like to do this and this and you're just like i've got my viewers have zero interest in you or anything you have to say one two things obviously that documentary you did if, if you hadn't been doing that documentary you probably wouldn't have got to go to those places and meet those people so they're things that will live with you forever mm -hmm. um but also I think for a lot of people, it was not just that, but what you you said about the viewership uh, going going up during lockdown, you provided a bit of escapism. And, you know, nothing wrong with that at all. And hopefully you've managed to retain a lot of those as well. It, it's interesting. So the, the, the video that we did that really exploded during lockdown was I brewed uh, five points best on cask. So I built built a cask well i didn't build the cask engine i installed a cask engine on my coffee table and brewed five points best because i missed it that much and that video you know that's probably between the two episodes of it is sitting around a hundred thousand views uh which is great it's not our best performing but it's a big video for us but what is so heartening is even today i got like two or three people tag us on twitter going just brewed that i've installed a cask engine in my house and and now i'm going to do the harvey's best recipe that's on malt miller's website and all this kind of stuff and it's just unreal to have that kind of impact on people you know changing people's weekends because you know they're going to brew that and they're going to drink it in three days and invite their friends around and you know i'm being genuine when i say there's no amount of money i could be paid that would mean as much as somebody just tweeted me going i made that five points best recipe you and five points came up with for homebrew 
and I'm making it this weekend for my mates. I got one today, a DM from somebody who's brewing it for their best mate's wedding. So something that I worked on is going to be served at someone's wedding. And it's just, um, I'm almost a little bit teary. It's just, it, it, it's amazing sort of the, the privilege of having that kind of platform and, and being able to do that. So I'm not moaning. I'm just saying finances are hard, but God help me if the, the job satisfaction isn't incredible. <laughs> and where do you take the channel next, mate? What's, what, what's, next for, what's next for the Craft Beer channel and what's next for you? Um, I mean, that, that's the question that me, me and Brad, my business partner, are asking ourselves at the moment. So we're about to release um, on the 29th of September, two days after the book goes live, um, we're releasing a, a documentary series all about car scale. So trying to give Carscale a, a kick up the backside after COVID. Um, and off the back of that, we're going to be doing a big campaign to um, uh, to get Cask recognised by UNESCO as uh, a bit of um, an example of intangible cultural heritage, like Belgian beer cafes and stuff like that. So that that's our next big thing. Um, and that's backed by Fuller's, um, who asked for no editorial control. They just... They said, here's the funding, go make it happen. And we've had a, a lot of fun, but a lot of stress with that kind of pressure. Um, so that's the next big thing. And I hope that that's like a year long project to, you know, part, partly through the book, through a year of beer, I've, I've recognized the incredible importance, not, not so much of, of, of car scale as a format, but of the brewers that are producing it, of how tragic it would be to go back to the situation we had in the 80s and 90s where they were being systematically wiped out bought out and wiped out and, and how important it is not that we i hate the idea of cask as being just like a historical asset we need to protect it's something we need to protect for the future to make sure that we continue to have i think now the most diverse beer scene in the world um and so you know i wanted to have a bit of a legacy because if the craft beer channel doesn't doesn't last you know, like I've, I've, I've now got a kid on the way, which I'm very excited about, but it, it already has changed my perspective on, on what my career needs to be and what I need to get out of it. And I want to make sure that the craft beer channel, if it's not making money for me, it's doing good. And I can find another way to make money and make sure that there's something left over from the craft beer channel that is, you know, whether it's somebody getting some five points best at their wedding brewed by their friend or whether it's like, having having a, a a bigger impact like the unesco listing i just want to make sure that something like that happens so i think like a lot of craft beer businesses were looking at legacy already which i think is a real shift you know it used to be craft beer used to be about fighting the big guy and now it's more about it's almost a retreat it's almost like ensuring that the work we've done so far remains which is a bit of an interesting situation to be in given that we're still growing um but i think I think the way of the world, the confusion and the heartbreak that's out there all over the world right now means people are like, I just want to, I just, I just want to do good. And if I can make money doing it, then that's, that's great. And that's kind of how I see the craft beer channel at the moment. It's, it's interesting that you use the word legacy there because that's something I've been working on uh, over the last couple of weeks as well is, is what's, what's the legacy of this podcast? Because there, there will come a point where, we won't want to do this anymore. And, and, and we've always said, we'll, we'll, we'll do it as long as we enjoy doing it. And we're still enjoying doing it. So we've, we've no intention of stopping, but when the day comes that we stop, we, we we're not going to want to continue to pay for 
hosting fees and domain names and it's how do we ensure that the, the content that we made for probably 10 plus years is still available for future generations mm-hmm. so um, i've i've been working on converting all of our audio to video content to put onto youtube because it's the only place we can find to put it for free yeah where, where people can access it don't, don't worry mate we, 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 it's, it's not ever going to be anywhere i will take you down <laughs> it's, it's, it's purely just audio content that will be available on youtube but it's it's I, I suppose it's it's important to make sure that you know we put a lot of work into doing this you put a lot of work into doing what you do and at, at, at some you want that to continue to be available don't you for people to listen to and, and for people to watch in in, in your situation yeah it's super interesting on that point so all these people that i follow like who who are sort of entrepreneurs making money as digital businesses and they always talk about passive income and that is interesting to me you know i want to find ways of of making sure that the stuff that i make continues to make money but what's more interesting is they're all producing content that will be irrelevant in a year's time and everything that i make when me and brad are coming up with these ideas you know increasingly we're we're saying we're not going to put that one-off beer on we're not going to talk about that hype brewery because in five years time, when people look at this, they're going to be like, where, who are these people? What are they talking about? What's this beer? And, and making sure that we have this evergreen content is the word in content production, but content that will outlive us by a long, long way. And you know, that that's why I didn't want to put too much COVID into the year and beer book. It's why we made that documentary because I think, something I often think about, and I've had disagreements with, with Ron and Martin about this, um, about being too prescriptive about history and, and being too precise and not putting enough, you know, history is subjective. It's written by the victors, right? And they're there going, this is the right answer. This is the wrong answer. And you're like, well, no, because you're going to find another book in six months time that says something different. And so it's really important that podcasts like this are available as resources, that the New England documentary is there and people can hear you know, Jason, the head brewer at Allagash say, you know, why they made Allagash white, why they made Allagash triple, why they were so keen to put a cool ship in, even though it made no financial sense and hear all this stuff so that, you know, 50 years time, there's going to be somebody like you, somebody like me, somebody like Martin, probably doing a podcast, you know, the, the world will be burning around them, but it'll be like, this is my legacy as, mm-hmm. as global warming takes us down. Um, and they'll be hopefully listening to this podcast watching YouTube, breeding pellicle and good bit hunting and having these resources for them to tell better stories than we ever could because there's so much of it out there now. So it's great to hear that you're trying to find a way to make sure they survive because pe- people forget that the content you make now, the photos you take of you at university, the blogs that you write are somewhere on the internet, probably forever. And we need to be aware of that from a, from a financial perspective, short term, but from a, a legacy perspective it's always going to be there yeah and, and i think one of one of the drivers for me was obviously we've been doing this for for a long time now but i'm i'm aware that there were people before that came before us there were there were a handful of beer podcasts that existed before the beer o'clock show came along but you can't find their content anywhere because they don't pay for it to be available mm-hmm. anymore so and, and it's such a shame to not be able to go back and, and to listen to some of that content when podcasting was new 
and fresh in the UK. And I, I, I wouldn't ever want to get to, to a situation where in five, ten years' time, if, if we're no longer doing this, where, where people can say, oh, can you remember that? Remember that Beer O'Clock Show podcast? That used to be really good. And someone go, oh, where can I listen to it? And oh, it's no longer available. You can't find it anywhere. Mm. So, so, so for me, it was it was about making sure we put that marker in the sand to say we will always be here. We'll always be available for you to listen to somewhere. And and you know that red IPA that you make for for some wonderful reason has some cultural impact. You'll need these records so that people all know that this is where it came from. And the, these are the the stories. It's like brewers who still you know most brewers will digitally keep their records but they're also all still keeping a logbook. And I love it when I see that in a brewery. They're like, no, we still write it down and it still goes there next to, you know, at Fuller's, it goes back to fucking 18, whatever it is, 1840 something, 1860 something. Like, it's so important that we, that we, that we, um, that we keep these records. No, I mean, I, I appreciate the work that Steve's doing with that. And I think it will be a wonderful resource if for no one else, other than just for me and Steve, in years to come to know that, what we've done is still available to us, even if it's to no one else. I mean, there's there's many episodes of the Craft Beer Channel I never want to watch again. But, you know, we, we did, during lockdown, we did a watch party for our documentary because, you know, I wanted to watch it again and see the reactions and, and also see some people see it for the first time because there, there's a lot of joy in seeing something that you're not close to. That was three months of work for me. And I got to watch it again 18 months later and, you know, have people interact and ask questions and stuff like that. And, and I, I, I can't tell you how satisfying it is to see things re-enjoyed, you know, box set style, something that you've made. It's, it's unreal. Yeah, no, I think, you know, I think we've got that. I think sometimes Steve gets maybe a little bit more than me because the slightly, the extra work he puts in, but when people do do a bit of a listen back, and you may not want them to listen to everything going back. Don't get me wrong. You know, you may not want, to, Steve may not want them to listen to episode two in 2012. I might not want them to listen to the first show that I did, that kind of stuff. But it's nice to know it's still available for people to do it. And it is nice when people then do interact with it. And sometimes a comment comes out of the blue where they go like, we've gone back to episode so-and-so. It's like, really? Bloody hell. <laughs> but you go, yeah, really bloody hell surprised, but please at the same time. Mm-hmm. so yeah the opportunity for us to digitize what we've done to save it i think is a really good idea and going back to what i said earlier there's less chance of me getting a message saying i've had a fantastic idea so you know it's it's a win it's a win-win for everyone that's all i'm going to say it's a win-win i'm glad in your duo you have the same thing because i'm endlessly getting uh getting messages from brad it's like i've had an idea and you're like Okay. And he always said, he's one of those people that sends WhatsApps instead of like a whole message with sentences. It's one message, next message, each sentence is a new message. And so he's sat there watching, what am I going to have to do? Oh my God. That, that, that's it. That's it, Johnny. Exactly. I, I, I know exactly where you're coming from there. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, we've got one question from a listener this week that uh, we want to answer and actually I want to ask this one because I'm interested in getting Johnny's opinion on this one questions, questions fill my head so this is from Rob Zilla at Rob Many Handles uh, if you could ban any one specific beer ingredient adjunct or anything used to make beer what would you pick and why and you can only pick one so um, 
I think we'll let Martin go first to give Johnny a bit of time to think about this. I decided not to go for the obvious additions that people may be associated with the answer to this question, such as Sirachi or Sabro. And, but then the first one which came to me because of those two was something like coconut. Don't add coconut to a beer. Um, and then I was obviously inspired by our pumpkin conversations during the course of this show, and pumpkins made its way in there. And also now Christmas spices. But I've got a caveat all of that by saying that I wouldn't want brewers to not innovate. I just want them to do it properly rather than just chucking stuff in because it's a seasonal thing to do, such as pumpkin or the Christmas, the Christmas spices. So if I had to choose one, I'd get rid of coconut out of beer forever. Jo- Johnny, uh, what, 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 what are you thinking in terms of just one thing that, that you never want to see in a beer again? Could, could, so, I mean, I'm going to have to give two answers as well. What, one is a literal ingredient, and that is, what, while it can be wonderful in Imperial Stouts, fuck lactose. Um, I'd, I'd rather lose all the lactose stouts in the world than have more lactose IPA. But the the more nuanced and the more uh, the less tangible answer would be hubris. Um, I think that excessive confidence, usually pride before a fall, uh, is the you know it, it's craft beer showing its um, its ugly side, which is we're better than you with no real thing to back it up. So you know. American breweries that come out going, this is genuine Hellas or genuine Pilsner, and then you taste it and it has zero in common with anything made in the Czech Republic um, or claims to be the best New England IPA, the best West Coast IPA, uh, stuff like that. Claims to use only quality ingredients as if brewers just throw any shit in there. Any of this kind of self-aggrandizing marketing we're talking about beer being all about context you're ruining the context by making those claims be honest be open um and and the beer will taste better sell better and the people will feel better when they drink it so yeah hubris slash lactose steve what about you oh the the list is long and distinguished um (laughs) coconut can do one uh tonka I don't like that in my beer. Cinnamon, uh, yeah, the aforementioned pumpkin. Um, in fact, all spices, anything that came from the sea doesn't belong in a beer, so it can go back in the sea. Um, this this list, I mean, how 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 long have you got for me to go through things that I don't like and that uh, I don't no, want? None, none of us, n- neither me nor Johnny nor our listeners, had that long a time. <laughs> okay, quite quite simply, um, I, unfortunately, mate, I'm I'm gonna go with exactly the same answer as, as you had coconut it has no place in anything it belongs in its shell on a tree <laughs> or on the floor on a beach and that's where it should stay forever and ever amen and there we go if anyone else wants to join in that conversation please let us know use the yes. hashtag opinions and we'll find you um, as it's probably evident at this point, I am almost at the bottom of my <laughs> Imperial Brown Stout. Uh, it has continued to be thoroughly delicious as it's gone down the glass and as it's continued to warm. Martin, um, do you have any additional comments to add to, to that beer? 
Yeah, did we order a second bottle? No, we just ordered the one, unfortunately. Fuck. That's all I've got to say. <laughs> Johnny, how's the maiden finishing off for you? It's wonderful. I've actually... Oh, no, I didn't pour the whole bottle in. I thought I was nearly through it, and I was like, I feel all right. But no, it's because I pulled half the <laughs> bottle. Um, it's actually getting smoother, which is a dangerous state of affairs. It has been um, wonderful to have you on with us this week and to take us through um, a year in beer. Um, it's been lovely to finish on this cold winter's evening, with this wonderful <laughs> Imperial Brown Stout. Um, but it's been really enjoyable talking to you about the journey that you went on personally in, in terms of writing the book um, and, and, and listening to you talking with a lot of passion about what, what you've put onto those pages. And uh, I hope our listeners have, have enjoyed that as well. And I hope many of them will go on to, to, to buy and enjoy reading your book. So this is your final uh, opportunity for a, an elevator pitch, as, as they say. <laughs> um, the stage is yours. Um Buy the book. Think seasonally about everything you drink, even if you think it isn't seasonal. Try to find that seasonal angle. Um, and also, if you're going to have a beer, get a cheese board. Yeah. Words words to live by. <laughs> strong, strong words to live by. Uh, Martin, what's coming up on the next show? Well, as a counterpoint to the last beer we've just finished, the 9.5%. We'll do another alcohol-free show. I'm not really sure how this has come about, given my about doing the first one five years ago, but we are going to do our our third alcohol-free beer show in a couple of weeks' time. Okay, I'm I'm looking forward to that, and I'm looking forward to constantly reminding you how you said you would leave if we ever did a second alcohol-free beer show. Let alone a third. Yeah, so it's it's great that we're coming on to a third. Um, Carry on using that hashtag opinions, and you can get involved in the show in many ways. Johnny, once again, thank you for joining us this evening. There will be a whole host of links in the show notes to everything that you're up to right now um it's been a really enjoyable evening i've enjoyed every beer and all that's left to say is cheers cheers Cheers, guys thank you four seasons in one day lying in the depths of your imagination worlds above and worlds below the sun shines on the black clouds hanging over